0: Welcome to the Take 92 podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I'm your host. And today we are dusting off the podcast mic, though we did not do a proper season this year for our annual top 10 albums of the year. Now, this is a unique episode because this is the very first video podcast on the Take 92 podcast video episode, I should say. I can't really edit now because I'm on camera. So anything I say, that's what you get. But here we are. Usually, I do a format that consists of 10 honorable mentions and then the top 10, working our way from the lowest to the highest all the way up to number one. We're going to do that in a similar fashion today, but it's not going to be quite as extensive on the honorable mentions. I figure I should address this year, the first half of the year, I had so many personal things going on. I just decided that I needed to put the show on hold. I already have the Bat Fanatic podcast, which is uh, my Batman show where we review comics and film and animation. And that has sort of become my main most consistent show at this point. Reason being, it's a regular cast. You know, my co-host and I, we record one episode and then we put a date on the calendar for the next one. And I had so many people say yes to do season seven, I think, of the Take 92 podcast. And it just didn't happen. You know, a yes doesn't mean much until you actually get that date booked and sometimes not even then we've had some crazy ones so yeah i was gonna have members of rancid some 41 all kinds of great bands and uh less than jake was another and scheduling just did not permit so went on a break i was also going to do as we did one episode earlier on dead fucking serious my punk band i was going to do an episode on the rap album that i dropped this year but i only did the the lyrics and my other half of the group web the free range human was going through some crazy personal stuff at the time and i wasn't able to get him on the show so felt weird decided to just skip it as much as i wanted to really dive into those songs and do a lyrical breakdown i did not so here we are at least we're doing the reflection at the end of the year like we always like to do And since we are shortening a bit on the honorable mentions, I wanted to first show a couple other musical things that I picked up this year. Uh, I was able to go and see some shows, got to be front row for Bad Religion, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, all these bands I've seen before, but like really get up there for the first time. And that was awesome. And another thing is, I have been going to more and more comic cons and even scouring eBay more often. And I've been able to meet some great people, get some autographs in person, and then also get some autographs from folks that I will probably never meet realistically. So let's start with the big one. And that is uh, I had the whole band Metallica from their last album, "Hardwired to Self-Destruct," they each had a headshot signed. I got the whole set of these. I only took Lars off of the wall because uh, I didn't want to have a whole stack of frames here on the desk. But yeah, my favorite band ever since you know I was a kid. Inspired me, you know, to do all new things on the guitar when I was in middle school, and still inspires me today when I write for DFS. Uh, The first show that I saw this year though was actually a comedy show. And I got to meet David Cross. He had a a VIP meet and greet up in Portland. And uh, that was awesome. His new show is amazing. I think it's actually out on streaming now. But uh, yeah, the new set just fucking destroyed. And then a bunch of us got to uh, actually just hang out with him. It wasn't like you stand in a line and you get your thing signed and you take your picture. You know, we actually, all just got to hang out and they had food and drinks and you know everyone just kind of chilling and we all got our time with them and it was really cool so i got all of my cds signed he actually said something like jesus christ you got the whole you know thing so uh that was cool and then also one of my favorite bands since 2001 i think when i saw them open for afi thrice and i I've talked about it before. I actually got to open for them back in the day. We talked about this on the Paul Minor episode. And that was Illusion of Safety 2002, my favorite album of theirs. And never got to meet them at the show that we played. And I've seen them a bunch of times ever since. They're still one of my favorite bands. And they were doing the 20th anniversary tour for The Artist in the Ambulance because they just re-recorded it, put that out again. In fact, we should talk about that. I'll, I will mention that uh, when we get into honorable mentions. I didn't even think about it because there's no physical uh, CD copy. You know me, I'm a CD collector. But um, yeah, they were doing a VIP ticket offer for this tour where you can come early. They'll perform acoustic songs just for you and you know you ask them questions whatever and then you can get your photos and your autographs and stuff so i got that album the illusion of safety signed i don't know how well you can see all those oh yeah there you go and uh got to meet all the guys and um i got my little badge signed my wife and i both got ours done that was really fun and man they just killed live they just destroyed um it was so good to see them playing the old shit again um, another one of my favorite bands from back then is the living end they're an australian band and they were doing the 20th anniversary or no 25th anniversary excuse me of their first full-length album it's the self-titled one and uh yeah they were offering autographed copies to the first, I don't know how many orders. And so I ordered it right away, just hoping maybe, and, uh, luckily months later it showed up with the signatures on it. So that was really cool. There's a whole second disc on it that comes with a live album from that era. So that's really cool. I've been fortunate to see them live a bunch of times. I think I saw them first, three albums maybe first four albums yeah first four records uh saw them out here once opening for offspring once opening for green day and then the next two i believe were headlining and um it was great we actually got to meet them uh, my wife and i behind the hawthorne theater in portland on the state of emergency tour that would have been probably oh five six something like that and uh yeah, their guitarist Chris Chaney, was was really cool. I remember them getting off the tour bus, and the girls were everywhere. Right, and the bass player went straight to the girls, and uh, then when the guitarist came up, he's the singer of the band, well, just amazing guitar player. Can do the like Brian Setzer rockabilly stuff, then can do the fucking you know Kirk Hammett metal shit. Like he's just a one of a kind guitar player. And uh, anyway, he steps uh, to the doorway of the bus and looks out and all the girls or whatever and he kind of looks past them and just sees me oh there's a band guy I don't know what he thought but he stepped off and I got to talk to him about guitar gear for like 10-15 minutes so that was great and now I finally have something because you know back then in 2000 whatever no one was carrying uh, HD cameras in their pockets so uh, nice to have a little souvenir for the wall Um, this fall I uh, got to reconnect with uh legend in hip-hop from the Freestyle Fellowship, Mike and Nine. Uh, one of the first shows I was booked for this year. In fact, my first real shows since the pandemic. I did one little local thing just to try it out, you know, and I played a couple with DFS. But my first rap show, Solo Shit, was uh, supposed to be a mini tour with my old friend DJ Abilities from Rhymesayers. And it was going to end in Berkeley at Gilman Street with Micah 9. And I got COVID and had to cancel all the shows. So, yeah, that fucked me up. But at the end of the year, Micah came through my town. And, of course, you know, they invite me to play when uh cool shows happen in the bay area and portland and seattle and other places but uh my hometown doesn't care as much so i missed out on that but i got to hang out with him backstage he signed this album for me and he signed the uh new book that he put out this year called it's all love and i'm actually interviewed in the book which uh, was really really exciting um yeah, anyway, hadn't seen him in a very long time. It was very cool. Just want to slip in another couple of uh, of Comic-Con autograph finds here. Oh, but first, I will mention my first show of the year is, I believe it's the first Friday in March with Mike and Nine at the Big Dirty because my dude KI Design, he runs that place, and he's got love for me. So... Really excited to be part of that show. And, uh, you know, we've been doing most of his appearances in this town since, like, 2012, I think. We brought him in together. He was on tour with our friend Graves33. And, uh, yeah, so we've done it at Lucky's. We've done it with the Freestyle Fellowship at the Wow Hall, and we did it uh, with him solo at Level Up, where KI used to work. So, yeah, come through the big dirty. You get to see one of the legendary innovators of freestyling perform on another level the dude's just a fucking alien man he's he's otherworldly with his talents anyway a couple more things that i picked up autograph wise that are not comic books okay and so one of my favorite movies right you know this the logo is on so many of my old group's albums, The Illusionist. The logo is on my van, on the doors. And uh, the Grindhouse movies, right? It was Planet Terror from Robert Rodriguez and Death Proof from Quentin Tarantino. They were uh, shot and and premiered as one film. And uh, yeah, it was the first time I saw a movie three times in the theater. I loved it so much. And so at Washington SummerCon this year, I got to have a chance to talk to Rose McGowan for a second. So I brought my planet terror DVD and, uh, I know the lighting's probably not great to see these, but it's the first time that I've been able to show you the stuff I'm talking about. So I wanted to bring a couple other things than just the albums, but yeah, she signed that for me, uh, says, uh, Sam Rose, uh, cherry. Yeah. So that's pretty cool cherry darling uh, another one that i got to meet is just a tremendous actor you guys uh, probably know him most recently from the mandalorian or back in the day from do the right thing but giancarlo esposito from gus fring fame better call saul and breaking bad i actually wanted i was talking to him about better call saul but i brought this because it was the only disc i had that was just him on the front so he was very cool got to chat with him for a minute and then when i went to that was also in washington and then when i went to uh what was the name of it i went to uh comic-con in austin texas and he was also there and so I didn't pay to meet him again, but he did a panel where he's speaking to the crowd. So my wife and I went and watched him talk for a while, which was uh, all kinds of unique, being in the middle of the strike. So he couldn't talk about his characters necessarily. So uh, that was it was very interesting to see a totally uh, unique experience with him. And another one, I usually go to Seattle for Emerald City Comic Con, and they were doing a big scream cast signing And I wasn't able to go, but I was able to mail in, not a Scream movie, but one of my other favorite movies from when I grew up, and that is SLC Punk. So, yeah, that was really exciting to get Matthew Lillard on here. And also, like, he's kind of having a little bit of a comeback. He's not a dude you see all the time, but, you know, he was in the new... uh, What's it called? Five Nights at Freddy's or whatever. That was a pretty cool movie. I didn't know the game, but I, I had a good time watching it anyway. In fact, I totally thought, I was like, yo, you know how I saw the, the kids from The Sopranos have been popping up you know, online. They got their new podcast. I think it's called Not Today, Pal. It's a really funny show. And I was like, I haven't seen them act in years, but I saw that kid in the trailer for this uh, new movie. Turns out I cannot tell him And this other dude apart who played uh, Peter Malark in The Hunger Games. Apologies, I don't remember either of their actors' actual names. But, uh, yeah, apparently those dudes look very, very similar to me because I thought it was the same guy. All right, yeah, you have to watch me take my water drinks here. But, anyway, we're going to get to the music now. First of all, I dropped... uh, few new projects that i worked on this year one of them we did an episode on this is dead fucking serious live in the flesh this is our first live album it's my like i don't know third fourth fifth live album something like that i forget i dropped a solo rap one last year i've done one with the illusionist uh there was a Early illusionist record that had a whole live album as a bonus disc. You know, I've done it a few times, but this one we had mixed and mastered by Paul Miner from Death by Stereo, and he's the one who did our 2022 album, Clandemic, as well as our reissue of the Reclamation EP. He remixed and remastered that whole thing. Sounds incredible. I genuinely don't want anyone else to touch our music ever again. And so we gave him the live tracks recorded here in town at John Henry's by Jake LaRoche, who's an amazing engineer here locally. And yeah, it turned out so good. So happy with it. Check out that episode with the band if you want to hear more about it. We also have a bonus track on there where we covered Metallica. And uh, it was the, the last track on Master of Puppets, Damage Inc. And we had Mike from Death by Stereo playing the drums, who he had played on Clandemic. We recorded it at the same time. And we also had Jason Milbank from a Wilhelm Scream and Senses Fail on the guitar solo. So yeah, that was a really cool collaboration to do just for fun. You know, that whole album Clandemic being made in sort of a pandemic vacuum, in a little bubble, it gave us a little more freedom to play around and do some shit we wouldn't normally do. But Next up, I did not get to do the episode on this that I wanted, but this is my first proper rap album in five years since Figures of Speech in 2018. This is Sammy Warm Hands and Web the Free Range Human. It's called Demented Inventive Energy. And if you know anything about us, we love DC Comics. So we did a little homage to that with the logo. And it's the, the design by Pat Jensen is based off of like the corner box. When You buy a comic, you know, up here, it would have like the little DC logo. And then it would have maybe a little drawing of the Hulk or something. And then it would say, you know, approved by the comics authority. And so we decided to just kind of take that and make it like the whole art. So we did the, the whole style kind of like a corner box and then the back cover here. Got the the bat signal parody with D-I-E, demented inventive energy. And the whole thing is laid out. Even you can kind of see the edges of other panels that aren't really anything. But we just thought it kept up the whole aesthetic. But yeah, man, I think it turned out really cool. I'm so happy with it. This is some of my best writing, some of his best production. And because of this next project I'm going to talk about, it sounds so much better than our collaborations before because where web is a genius with the sampling right and and chopping shit up and hearing these little moments uh, and being able to scramble them and repurpose them i have generally not been able to get like full multi track projects to mix from him you know and sometimes i got some stems like a first line of this album is better ask for the stems like order and vegetarian because it's so hard to make it sound right when all you have is all these old samples you know kind of rough mixed together and you don't have the ability to go in and adjust that hi-hat and adjust that bass line and all those things because you know they're pulled off records all together So on this one, he was able to give me stems on a few tracks, and then his hard drive crashed. And so we had to actually make the album with the rough mixes. So what I had done on this record, Primates, this is a local group here from Eugene, Oregon, hip-hop group. Album's called A Dying Breed, has amazing artwork. But these are some MCs that have been around since before my time even when I was playing punk rock back in the day and I learned about the group through their multi-instrumentalist producer Etzel, who I knew from Capcom Suicide and his other bands over the years playing punk rock. So Primates asked me to mix and master their songs. You know, they were a new group. They want to put out a couple singles and We did, I think, two tracks, and then we did another two tracks, and then we ended up doing a bunch more, and then I remixed those originals, and we just did a whole album out of it. And one of the parts of that process that was informative to me as a mixer, because I'm not there producing it and able to have my influence there, and so as a mixer, I had to get really creative at times to not only, you know, kind of mute certain parts and then add them back in to give the songs dynamics or like, you know, edit and line up parts a little differently to make it really pop, you know, when the chorus comes in or when the backup vocals hit, things like that. But there were also tracks where it was like, oh, this is just a whole drum track that's programmed in the computer or something, and it's like, oh, okay, well... If I don't have more to work with, then what am I going to do? And so I pulled up Drumagog, which is the program I use to add drum samples, you know, triggers basically, into my mixes, right? And I usually do it a small amount just so it kind of cleans it up a little bit. There's less bleed in the mix. But in this case, what I did was I took that drum track and I copied it and then i isolated the snares with eq and maybe gates and things like that and trigger a snare over the top of it okay cool now i can bring my snare up and down i can eq it compress it the way i want and then i would copy the original drum track again repeat all the same stuff but creating a kick drum layer so now i have a kick and a snare And the original track has the cymbals and everything on it, right? So now I have three drum tracks that I can play with. And so I would use methods like this to make the Primates album sound as fucking clean and punchy and big as it possibly could. And I think it sounds great. And right after I finished that is when I was finishing Demented Inventive Energy. So these two albums, to me, really go together together in my head and, and you know they were both done back to back this summer and I was able to use those techniques on web's tracks for kinda of the first time you know if you listen to some illusionist records back in the day I might be like adding an 808 or a heavier kick behind the funky drummer cuz there's no bottom end in the sample or something you know I would do little things but this is the first time I really went into the weeds with the mixes and they came out really cool because of it so What did I mention earlier for honorable mentions? Let's get into it. I mentioned thrice. That's what it was. The 20th anniversary, I don't even want to call it a remix. They re-recorded The Artist in the Ambulance, which was their first major label album on Island Def Jam back in 2003. So that album was a game-changer to me and my friends because the one that i showed you the illusion of safety was nuts it was such a blend of styles and the arrangements were so wild and interesting like we had never heard anything like that before and the next record was like oh now they've got a budget though and so they got these thick guitars with their mesas and their bogners you know and everything sounds fucking mean we used to obsess over their guitar tone and and uh that album as they returned to it was such a i guess departure from their last i'd say 10 to 15 years of work really because once they did the alchemy index and i may have spoken of this before where they they went from combining all their styles to like okay let's separate all the styles right and then after that they never really did it again they just kind of like oh you know what this air thing is like because it was like earth fire air and water and they kind of stuck with that air thing where it was more of like a, a post hardcore or a post rock or some some shit i don't know (laughs) but to me they slowed down the tempos they lost the teeth you know the the anger behind it and it lost the crazy dynamic shifts and you know kind of uh just expansive, wild arrangements and layering that they would do. And it sort of just became like, oh, they're a great band that writes great songs that you could pretty much play on an acoustic guitar, which is not the case of those first three records at all, for four records. And so they sort of made this new album to sound like their other new albums. So they re recorded the old record which was funny they did a great podcast about it and to hear this band talk about working with a mixing legend like Andy Wallace and talking about regretting it it's very strange I've heard some 41 say the same thing about their does this look infected album which was I think the same year even and I think also an island Def Jam release but yeah Both bands sort of dissatisfied with the, I guess, homogenized rock sound of the time that he was using his regular bag of tricks. But I always thought that album sounded great. And to me, it is fucking weird to hear some of those chuggy, chuggy metal inspired riffs played through a Telecaster and an AC-30, which is what Tepe was doing on the new record. I don't understand that. Uh, there are moments on the record that are even better, right? Because they were still a young band. They were young players, especially Dustin Kensrue was a young singer. And his voice didn't really evolve until Visu, but it didn't really get to the voice we know until later, even Beggars or, you know, beyond. He's become a great, great vocalist over the years. So vocals have vastly improved. But there were also a couple of uh, odd guest vocalists or something, and it's like, dude, we know you can still do the gnarly scream. Just do the scream. You don't have to have the other guy do the scream. Come on. you know. So I think the opening track soured me a little bit because it's one of those albums that just gets better and better as it goes. And what that means is the opening track is maybe the biggest departure and I was like, oh, okay, well, at least they'll do it like they do it live or something. It'll have the extra heavy jam at the end. Like, no, it doesn't. It just kind of is a atonal, more melodic version of the hardcore stuff. So, yeah, the artist in the ambulance revisited is one, not an album I could buy, because again, I collect CDs, and um, they didn't even bother to make it this time. It's the only album of theirs I've never been able to buy. So I listened to it online a couple times, you know, in my wife's car, I think, because she has Spotify in there. And um, if you know me, that's not something that I uh, like to use. So I listened to it in the car with her, you know. It's got its moments, for sure. I can understand what they were going for. But I also, as a listener and a producer, question some of the choices in uh, if you're going to return to that stuff, you know, at least remember the intent behind it, I guess I would say. Anyway, that's enough time on our first honorable mention. But okay, there's not many Uh, in the past. I've spent a long fucking time on those. The next one I want to mention is. Rancid. They have, I would say, I don't know, 10 albums, 12 albums, something like this. And Tomorrow Never Comes. This to me is a really clean album cover. It's very simple. It reminds me a bit of the back cover, I believe, of Rancid 2000. It's got the nice, bright color that really pops. I like that a lot. And it's also their best sounding album ever, hands down. It's just got really fat, rich production. The mix is fantastic. And they're a band who, you know, with Brett Gerowitz, he uses a pretty stripped-down production approach for these guys. Their last album, Troublemaker, actually shocked me at how good it was because Ranted's sort of a band that after a certain point, and I would argue after Indestructible, more or less kind of just did what you'd expect them to do, kind of, and settled into a lane. I would say that Tim's priority in the early 2000s was the distillers, and I would say that Tim's priority in recent years Has been the interrupters. And so in both of those eras, you sort of see Rancid not delivering their peak material. This is a very consistent album. I think front to back, there's not necessarily uh, skippable songs or anything like that. But I mean, there's some odd choices. The second track is called Mud, Blood, and Gold. And that song has this you know tim armstrong is a unique character right it's easy to make fun of his voice and uh you know people all have their shots at it uh i've done it before this guy really look up to, but also you know he's got some exaggerated characteristics and on that song it's very odd because you get a gang vocal all three singers at the same time doing all the words together and they're doing it in Tim's weird on and off the beat timing. And it sounds very strange. The first time I put it in, I was like, what the fuck is happening? How are they even following that in sync with him? I don't know how that happened. But for the most part, I would say it's a pretty strong set of songs, but just if not connecting with me for some reason. Again, it sounds great. It's really consistent. But something about Troublemaker really just impressed me. I think that and Never Gonna Die from Pennywise they came out at the same time. And those albums really struck me as like, oh shit, they still got it. They still got it. And with this one, it's good. It's solid. I'd say check it out if you like the band. Uh, but it's not going to be in my regular rotation when I think of the band. I want to them on i think if i wanted a newer record i would put on troublemaker instead um the next and last honorable mention is an album that i don't have i bought it but this is all i can show you right now i wrote it down so i wouldn't forget it's the bouncing souls 10 stories high throw that away now Bouncing Souls have been putting out some amazing records in recent years, starting with 2016's Simplicity. That was a really, really great album. And again, one of those, like, oh shit, they still got it. That's exciting. And, you know, they had a lineup change around that time, new drummer, and dropped an EP, and it was fucking great, you know, still really good. And this new record, 10 stories high, is a little bit i would say it's a little bit different because it almost feels more like a concept album you know 10 stories being like uh 10 different tales you know kind of wrapped together there are some songs that are very much like almost plays out like a scene or something but it's a strong record it sounds like i want to say uh almost overly polished clean album but still sounds really good and the only reason that i don't have it with me to show you and the reason that i don't have it higher on my list is because i haven't been able to listen to it in months my mom likes the band she likes a lot of punk pop punk melodic stuff that i like and her birthday was coming up in july And I was like, oh, man, I know the album, because I always get her a new album to check out. It's like, I know the one to get this new Bouncing Souls. It's really pretty damn good. And I I looked my local record stores. They didn't have it. And so I went to Amazon, and it wasn't going to get here until after her birthday. And I was like, oh, shit, I'll just give her mine. So I wrapped up my copy, gave it to her. And I think I've done that before. And then I just go and buy it. For whatever reason, I forgot to buy it. So as I'm putting together this list of albums for the end of the year, I'm like, oh, fuck, there's that (laughs) that Bouncing Souls record that I didn't actually uh, buy again. So I haven't listened to that one in quite a few months, but I remember enjoying it, and I would recommend it. Now, here we're getting into the top 10. I hope you guys like the video format. If you're watching it on my YouTube, if not, I'm sure you can just look up, take 92 Podcast or youtube.com slash Sammy warm hands. There you can see all of my music videos, like documentary shorts, my other podcasts and yeah, all kinds of shit that I've done. Cover songs, DFS shit, rap shit, All of that mixed in. You can see my new version of The Decline that I filmed last year. That was really cool. Anyway, we're getting into the top 10 albums of 2023. According to me, these are just my personal opinions as a longtime listener of these artists. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah. First band I mentioned earlier, and that is. The Smashing Pumpkins. This album is another weird name. It's called Autumn. It's spelled A-T-U-M. Their last album was called Sear, spelled C Y R. And his last, you know, two solo albums was like Cotillions and Oji Lala. Billy Corgan just likes funny-looking words. Don't know what to tell you. But this album is uh, quite a story because he was kind of leaking the information on this on his Instagram stories for a long time that Pumpkins did this album called Sear. It's very electronic influenced, you know, got some disco beats and shit like that. And it's a totally different style, right? But he wanted people to know we're making a rock record. And it's not just that, but it's a sequel to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And if you've listened to this show, you'll know that's my favorite album from anyone ever. Favorite album of all time, Melancholy. And Machina was their last album in 2000. And like Melancholy, it was conceived as a double, but... For whatever reason, as the band was breaking up, the record label had their say, it was released as a single album. And then they put up Machina 2, the second half, online. And it was underproduced and kind of sound like shit, like they were rough mixes or demo versions or something. Never really happened. But Billy Corgan is calling those two albums and autumn a trilogy now he was taking q a's regularly during the pandemic and i chimed in oh that's exciting does that mean the new record will have the same kind of sonic variation i said like from stumbling to tales of a scorched earth stumbling being a quiet beautiful acoustic song Tales from a Scorched Earth being the most gnarly shit they ever recorded. Distorted vocals, a hundred guitar tracks, screaming just nasty, insane, pissed off shit, right? He responded by putting up a little cartoon or an emoji or something of a zombie because he calls the people that asks him for Siamese Dream Part 2 or melancholy part two he calls those people zombies i don't know why they're stuck in the past some shit that's what he calls them and that's what he called me and i thought well that's weird because you're the one who brought this shit up you're the one who said i'm gonna make a continuation of those records right and i think it's fair to say that machina also has songs like Cash Car Star and Everlasting Gaze, you know, it's got some really fucking, some of their heaviest, gnarliest shit ever. And that's not really been where they've been at lately. So I was very interested, you know. He's become a much better singer. I will disagree with the consensus that his voice has gotten worse. I do miss the angry snarl, but his control of his voice and his falsetto his vibrato like his technique is so much better just listen to that solo album OG Lala is by William Patrick Corgan is the way that it was branded but listen to his singing on that record better than anything he's ever done it's amazing and a lot of people do have issues with that and i i, I take exception with it i think he's put in a lot of work to improve his voice over the years, but um, he has not had that angry side. I think we got one track when they brought James Eha back into the band. There was one song on that eight-song record, Shiny and Oh So Bright, that had a pissed-off, snarly Corgan voice. I'm like, oh my God, I haven't heard this since the year 2000. So, fingers crossed, they're dropping... A third in the trilogy, as he's calling it. And not only that, but it's 33 songs. It's a triple album. Three discs. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness had two discs and a box set of B-sides. Like 50 extra songs. And it would be fine. I love all their albums. I, I really do. I love them all. But it would be fine if only that much music existed from them because it's all so fucking good, right? He was just at his peak. So for him to keep evoking the name Melancholy and sequel and continuation and all these things, it was kind of doing himself a disservice because this record sounds nothing like Melancholy. And it sounds nothing like Machina. And it kind of bummed me out because it turns out the connective tissue is actually the least recognizable thing about that album. Melancholy in his mind is a concept album and Zero, the song and the shirt that he wore, you know, Zero, was a character that he was playing Zero's a rock star and, you know, whatever. It was just kind of a a surrogate for himself. And so in his mind, he's playing a character on that record. It's not super clear unless you're really analyzing the shit out of that. Again, it's my favorite album ever. I'm a fucking lyricist, first and foremost. Songwriter, producer, second. Like That is the last thing that has occurred to me as I listen to that record. And Machina was like glass. Now zero is called glass and it's the next evolution in his tale. This story <laughs> shiny is now the third name for the same guy for some fucking reason. And it is a space opera. That's right. In the booklet, it doesn't have the lyrics for each song. It explains which character is, uh, you know, whose point of view this track is from. And, uh, You know, what scene they're in, basically. And he's mapping out a play of shit that is so bizarre. If you listen to the 33 podcast, Billy Corgan, you will hear some wild shit. And so his elaborate space play is supposedly what makes it connected to my favorite album of all time. And, you know, it's just pretty good. It's just pretty good. The first disc, I was fucking, oh my god, oh no. And the second disc was better. And the third one had some even better ones. You know, there's some great songs on there, like Beguiled, I think was their biggest hit since they reunited, I want to say, in 2007. Um, Empires is another great song. You know, there's, there's plenty of good music in here. But there's also some really fucking weird shit like Hooray or, you know, just the fact that you have a triple album. It's gonna take a lot of time and commitment from your casual fans, right? And it doesn't start with the best material. It starts with some slow build up, you know, like, oh, is it gonna be a proggy thing? Like, no, not really. Jimmy Chamberlain's kind of got one hand tied behind his back playing basic beats again. Like, okay. It's like, you know, you got my favorite drummer just following the chord changes. Like, all right, great. And then it doesn't end with the the best stuff either. The last track, last couple tracks have some of the most almost unlistenable parts of the record. Only two in the last minute and a half, like four minutes into the closing track of the trilogy of discs here do they go into one of the most beautiful, serene moments of the whole thing. And it closes on this great note, and you're like, why couldn't you do that? <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. I will say, when I got to see him live, I thought, Fuck, if I can work my way up to the front row, um, you know, and I'll just stay there until they play the new songs and the hits that I've heard a bunch of times, and I'll just hit the road, right? I'm going to have to drive three hours home. Well, the show was so fucking good, and I was on the front row for the first time. It was amazing. And they played the new songs. I like the new songs in the set. And so, yeah, I don't know, man. I think maybe they curated some of the better ones. It's an album that sometimes, like I put it on today, all these albums, I listened to them all today. And uh, just to refresh my memory. And as it's going, I'm like, yeah, this one, this one's better than I remember, right? And then it goes on a little longer. And you're like, oh, no, there's that. No, no, I don't like that. No, I don't like this. You know, and I'm not a skipping songs guy. Even their last album, Sear, had like 20 songs, maybe more. And I think everything up until the very last song was like, it's not the style I like most from you guys, but God, they're well-crafted, they're well-produced. Basslines were hitting, vocals sounded great, you know? And yeah, this one just sounds kind of sterile. Even again, like my criticism of Tepe from Thrice, when they do the heavy songs on this record, like Harmageddon or something, you know, there's some songs where they got big, fat, punchy drums, like some of Jimmy Chamberlain's best mixed drum tracks are on this album, but then also some of the most flat. And on some of those heavy songs, it's like Billy Corrigan isn't using his rig. It sounds like he's just plugging in, you know, using an amp simulator. And I don't believe that's the case, but they're just kind of fizzy and flat. And this is a dude who, like, I bought, my first Mesa dual rectifier because of how gnarly Billy's sound was. And, you know, he was a primary influence in me developing my own sound as a guitar player. And if you go watch my stolen song sessions on YouTube for Smashing Pumpkins, I did a whole tribute album of theirs. And I try to duplicate that guitar layering for melancholy and make it sound fucking gnarly or my album asshole extraordinaire. I, would literally layer 20 guitars at a time in certain parts because I wanted that disgusting guitar layering that only Billy Corrigan and Trent Reznor, in my opinion, have achieved. And so it was disappointing for a guy who I really respect his ear and the sounds he goes after to, uh, even when he did deliver some of the heavier songs, still, it just wasn't same it just didn't do it so yeah you know it's interesting to me as i do these top tens when i'm reviewing them i sort of need to justify i guess why it's not at the top of the list like you would think you know second favorite band just behind metallica right I I would be singing its praises. Sequel to my favorite album ever. You'd think I'd be, you know, and I was very excited and I was very happy to see them live. But yeah, I'm going to give an honest critique as to why these aren't higher on the list. So next at number nine is perhaps my favorite rapper alive Black Thought Glorious Game. And this was done with a guy named l michael's affair l michelle's affair i don't know this guy i think he produced all of the beats on there and it's kind of like cheat codes black thought and danger mouse you know he seems to be doing these one producer team up solo albums or duo albums and um both of them this and the last one they just don't Let me put it this way. When I first heard The Roots, it was, I don't think it was even Things Fall Apart. It was like earlier stuff. And my bass player, Chris, was like, oh, check this out, man. I found It's like a hip-hop live band. They're so good. He put it on. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, man. This shit's kind of (laughs) mellow for me. It's a little too laid back. And I didn't really want to hear jam, like a rap jam, you know. And that's kind of what it felt like. And it wasn't until Rising Down when I heard this song, 75 Bars. And Black Dot was just going in. And it's a funky, hard-hitting beat. And he's got that edge to his voice, that signature fucking rasp that he has, like, on all of his features. And, you know, they're high-energy songs. And he's just going nonstop. but fucking destroyed it, you know, like, like a niece. <laughs> what was it? I'm like a haystack, try to find, find a needle up in there. You know, like he just fucking just going on and on with the wordplay, And, um, you know, again, some of those features that he did around that time, you know, like on ghost face or, uh, uh, you, and more recent years, like on Pharaoh Mont records, like he's, he's popped up in a lot of places and always delivers, you know, but I, I like the hungry side of him. And so these last couple of records this one again is a little more laid back. And yeah. it's a little more comfortable. Maybe a little more introspective, which is cool. There's some good shit on here. I wanted to point out a song like that girl, really great song. Uh you know, the the kind of lyrics that you would hear on a roots album and be like, "Oh, yeah." And I and I wonder if his role in the roots was You know, he was the resident MC, right? Or is. But on those last few records, there were so many features, you know, not just Dice Raw, but like lots of dudes popping up all over the place. And it kind of got to the point where he was like almost a guest of the roots as well. And so all he would have to do is come in real strong for one or two verses and he'd fucking own the track, you know? And so what I've wondered is as he's doing the solo records where he's the only rapper, save for maybe a feature or two, how does that change his perspective on killing the song? Right. And there's some of these tracks where he, he can really stay on topic from start to finish and give you a story arc and it's fucking great. But you know, then there's other songs that are just solid and it's fine. So, i think that girl is a great song the weather i think is another song where i credited epic beard Men, sage francis and b dolan when they were on this show for doing a song that had multiple tempo changes and shit in it and this song the weather is one where black thought plays with the same shit and the production is very inspired on this one and the way that he's able to jump around and not make it like when Epic Beardman did it, the song Shin Splints, the speed up was made to create anxiety and tension in what they were talking about in the song. And this one almost feels more seamless uh, the way it kind of uh, ramps up and then drops back down. It's it's uh it's a really smooth and and clever song structure in this song so i would definitely recommend this album i think the only thing i didn't care for is the title track chorus glorious game featuring kirby i don't know who that is but there's sort of like a baby talk thing going on with this and i'm not going to emulate it for you but if you listen to the song glorious game you'll know what i mean uh yeah it's a little weird it's not for me but really really strong record um and i would put it next to to cheat codes but i still think that that hungry fire that edge that you get from black dot at his peak is on those roots records and on those features next at number eight is Maybe the most hyped up album, and I don't mean that in a derisive way, but the most anticipated album of this year, at least in the uh, punk related circles, and that is Blink182 One More Time. This was the return of Tom DeLong to guitar and co lead vocals after Matt Skiba held it down for the band for a long time and they sort of did what the red hot chili peppers just did to josh klinghoffer a couple years ago you know your main guy leaves and the band wants to continue so you know they bring in a friend and he does everything for them they make two albums together both bands did that uh toured a bunch you know and uh then once the original guy wants to come back it's like okay well you know see you later thanks for trying and i think it was more amicable in blink but uh that's basically the parallel story the main difference of course being that mark hoppus was diagnosed with cancer and i believe this was smack during the pandemic like 2020 ish and you know he had to go through chemo and a whole bunch of shit and that reunited them as friends and the bitterness and the pettiness and all the bullshit went away and i thought that was amazing to see you know and and i watched mark's recovery like many of you did on social media and you know it was really inspiring and to see him playing bass in in just youtube videos again at home you know doing his little uh streams and stuff you know that that was that was really cool and I was so glad that he was able to bounce back and they had done those two Matt Skiba Blink records with John Feldman from Goldfinger he's a great producer and he co-wrote most of the songs on those albums so if you listen to the late 20 teens Blink albums 9 and California and then you listen to The Knife, and oh fuck, what was that last Goldfinger album? It was one of my favorites of the year, now I can't think of the name, but yeah, if you listen to those two Blink albums and the last two Goldfinger albums, they have very similar sounds, and Travis Barker even plays on some of the Goldfinger stuff, and you know, I think some fans didn't like that it was a little bit homogenized, like they're sort of rubbing off on each other and doing a little bit too much of the same thing i thought california was a strong album Mosqueda, and then they just got really really poppy you know feldman uses a lot of auto tune there's never a moment where the guitar riff just plays you know it's always got to have a whoa or an oh or some big sing-along like i can't imagine playing those songs live because you would never just get to breathe for a second you're always <laughs> straining your voice up and down <laughs> Um, so this new record was produced by Travis Barker and the return of Tom DeLonge. And so for a lot of us fans, that's very interesting that maybe though the late Jerry Finn will not be around to produce, maybe the band doing it themselves is the best thing we could hope for. And when it came out. I think there was mixed feelings on that. Some fans thought that, you know, Travis lost his signature drum sound, you know, that he used, uh, you know, too many studio tricks, like I talked about blending in samples and stuff to make it, um, you know, you don't want to compress the fuck out of it. And most records are super compressed. And so, you know, that's one way you can get away with not compressing it as hard is to record your kit ahead of time. And then as you're playing, you know, blend in those kicks and snares so the hits are even, you know, that's a trick that a lot of people do uh use, I should say. And I think his drums sound fucking great because I was always of the mind that he had that poppy piccolo fucking ska snare on those early records. And I remember reading about there'd be arguments between Jerry Finn went, tune that fucking thing down, and then Travis would tune it back up, you know, he liked that smack, you know, I think maybe it's that marching snare thing, I don't know but this record to my ear, sounds like really punchy and tight on the drums, and I fucking love it, um, you miss a little bit of Tom's signature guitar tone when he returned, because again he had a really unique Mesa sound that on their classic records was phenomenal. But if you ask me overall, I would say I prefer this sound to their untitled record or the self-titled record from like 2003, four, whenever that was, you know, when they, they kind of made a little bit of a, a departure in their sound and, you know, it was more room mics and ambient shit. And I think what's cool about this album is that it's one of those rare times when a band that's been around a long time can pull out a little bit of everything in their career. You know, I think Green Day had an album like that. It was Revolution Radio. You can hear a little bit of every era of the band in that. I think Metallica had that with Hardwired to Self-Destruct. You know, you hear everything from, you know, Kill 'em All inspired shit to load reload you know it had a little bit of all the things on there and i think it's really special when a band can do that and especially in these circumstances of reuniting these old friends and doing it one more time as the album says man i think that they really delivered i really do um it's one of those things where They can embrace the sort of, um, I guess, more indie influences or mellower, I don't know how to describe it. This is not my fucking thing, right? When they kind of became almost an emo band or associated with that kind of scene, you know, Um, the untitled record, Neighborhoods was a great album, but it has some of those elements. You know, I guess when Tom went Angels and Airwaves, right, got a little spacier, a little different. And this album starts with the fast shit. It's got a couple like, you know, twenty, thirty second songs on there. I love that. I was happy when they did it on California. I'm happy about it now. And it's got great, like great lyrics from both of them. You know, they talk about the things that they've been through, the time they've spent apart and getting back together, all of those things. You know, it was a great line in the title track, one more time. Or said something about, you know, it, it it shouldn't take uh sickness or airplanes falling from the sky. You know, it's it's one of those like looking at everything they've been through and like, man, why do we waste those years feuding with each other over some bullshit? And so I think Travis Barker being always kind of the 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 Kirk Hammett of the group, you know, he was the neutral one who uh had relationship with both of them, even when they weren't speaking to each other. I think he really has the biggest role he's ever had before um not just because he sang backup vocals in a couple parts and you know not just because he produced the record but you know they're mending their friendships and rebuilding their lives and blink was a huge fucking thing man when i was growing up so it is really cool to see them reclaim the the throne of pop punk you know i even saw that they played some big festival with Green Day and that like a not small fraction of the crowd left after Blink. And that's pretty crazy because Green Day has been pretty much unrivaled as the biggest band in the genre for fucking ever, you know, since American Idiot, really, because American Idiot was right after those big Blink albums, you know, and kind of when they would begin to separate and go into obscurity so yeah i think there's some great shit on here my favorite song is bad news uh breakup song another clever subversion that they do is i think there's songs like this where mark singing a breakup song and he's a happily married man and yet we know that tom went through a divorce and so it almost feels like mark is writing for tom but he's going to sing it for you. And there's times when Tom does the same for Mark about the things he's been through with his health and stuff. And so, yeah, there's some really great moments on here. Terrified was a boxcar racer song that they never finished and became a Blink song. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of good shit in here. So I would only slight it for the auto-tune. I don't know why. That's the one thing from Feldman that they kept, but. You know Travis Barker's taste in rap music, for example, is like the shit that I hate the most. And I think having him as the producer, you know, it's like he's coming off. Didn't he produce that Machine Gun Kelly pop punk album? Where it was the same thing. It's like really, really overproduced, especially on the vocals. Cause everything's fucking auto Hey, use your pitch correction by all means, but, you know, don't make it sound like T-Pain, and some of these songs sound like T-Pain, but anyway, uh, strong record, that's really the only thing I would fault it for, and I've really enjoyed it, I've listened to it a lot, when it first came out, I thought, damn, this might be in contention for uh, album of the year, but as it stands, today, when I put together this list, and listen to everything real quick, I'm thinking it's a strong number eight, at least, next is another band in the punk circle this is a band from australia and they're on fat records i believe i reviewed their last album on the show it's a band called clowns and this record is called endless and i did not know it existed until the other day (laughs) i remember seeing one song that they dropped like beginning of the year and because I spend most of my internet time on the Bat Fanatic page because thinking about music and being a musician crushes my soul and makes me sad I like to spend a lot more time on my Batman page where everyone's just sharing the stuff that we love and no one's in competition so I somehow missed this album, and I saw somebody comment on Reddit, oh, that's my favorite punk album of the year. I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't know it was out. So I ordered it, got it right away, and I was blown away. As I do talk about the production and the mix, their last album was very good. And as much as I enjoyed it, it was also one of those albums that if I'm cranking it up, can give me a headache. Because it's very mid-heavy. It's a lot of guitars up front. You know, they're kind of washing over the drums a little bit. A lot of vocals. And with this record, it's almost a reaction to that. Like, they felt the same way, I think. Because it is so bass-heavy and scooped out in the middle. It is very powerful. I almost miss some of the guitars on this one. But... To my ear, I do prefer this this style. It, you know, it's much much heavier. It's fucking big. It's like, oh, uh, uh, what's his name? The, I know this guy. He's a producer for Ignite and Pennywise and The Last Gang. Cameron Webb. There it is Cameron Webb. It reminds me of his mixing style that is very scooped and fucking punchy, maybe a little Joe Barisi, but less natural than Joe Barisi. I don't know if you guys are into fucking audio mixers, but you know, that's how I think. But this album surprised me because they were already one of those bands that I would compare to Pears, P-E-A-R-S, another fat rec band, American band, that is, you know, one of their newer signings in the last, you know, five or ten years, and they Blend styles constantly. It's not like this song is that style, this song is that style, whatever, like maybe Blink is doing here. It's really fucking like hard turns and mixing stuff like those early Thrace records I talked about. But um, Clowns inserted some very heavy thrash metal shit on this album, Endless, that was not there before. And I am all about it. I could not be happier. Those parts surprised me, and uh, genuinely, I would—I was driving around. I was a delivery driver this Christmas season, and I was listening to music all day. Got this, you know, great stereo in the van with the big sub and everything. And I put this record on, and I was like, Jesus Christ! And I remember the song "Death Wish" came on. And you get this long growl. By the way, the album opens with perhaps the longest recorded scream I've ever heard, uh, to the extent that I would love to see a video of it being recorded, because I almost don't believe that it's real. (laughs) But when the song Death Wish came on, it had this like a low metal growl or something. I was like, oh, that's different. And then it goes into this fast, fucking chuggy you know, thrash metal part and it's got dive bombs and guitar solos. And I'm like, this is fucking great. It's like they went full propaganda slayer shit on this one. You know what? It's actually got elements of like power trip. That's what I would say. It reminds me of at times. And yet it still has the catchy melodic punk stuff. And, you know, lyrically, the band is still super like funny and confrontational and cynical i haven't sat down with the lyrics but if i'm hearing it right you know there's like a i would say common diss you know if someone would say something like you know oh yeah i was fucking your mom last night you were oh what are you talking about my mom right i'm pretty sure there's a song on this the bisexual awakening is that the name yep where he's talking about uh being bisexual and therefore like i'll fuck your mother i'll fuck your brother i'll fuck your whole family. Um, I could be misreading that, but based on some of the shit that they said on the last record, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. (laughs) Anyway, it's really funny. It's got a great album cover, again, super over-the-top metal shit, and fucking it sounds massive, it's fast, it keeps you guessing. But there's one downside, and that is it does not have a strong ending. There is a bunch of nonstop hard hitters, just bangers after bangers. And then the track Quicksand, which is second to last, you know, we, we lead into it as this big, like, enough is enough would be a perfect ending. Just stop. I like a short punk record. But what they do is they almost make an intro. To me, it makes more sense as an intro. It's like a very quiet, I think, acoustic thing, and it drags out for a little while, and then it suddenly ramps up, and then, oh my God, it's a fast punk song. And it's pretty cool. I don't dislike the song, but I question its use as the back end of the album. And then on top of that, I would say the last track is probably one of my least favorite things on any of these albums we're going to talk about. It is like a 10 minute spoken story of some old timey bank robbers or some shit with the band playing behind it. And I'm not opposed to a very long song. I'm not opposed to a story in a very long song. But unless it's like Weird Al's Albuquerque, and it's really, really entertaining, I don't know how it belongs on this album of short, aggressive, spastic energy punk songs. It doesn't make any fucking sense. It's really out of place, and it bummed me out at the end of the record. So that is the only reason this isn't very high on my list, because holy shit, that, is a good album so what are we at 10 9 8 7 clowns is number seven at number six this is another rap record one of my all-time favorites i got it the same day i believe as clowns and it's one that i didn't find in any of my local record stores even though I look forward to it coming out. Nah, fuck. All right, so got to order it online. It takes weeks to get here. Fine. I haven't had to spend as much time as I would have liked to to get to know this and review it better. But Aesop Rock Integrated Tech Solutions. It starts with a cheesy 80s corporate music my background as he's saying like, hello, welcome to ITS Integrated Tech Solutions and blah 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 blah, you know. And it's sort of a fake I don't know if it's necessarily like a commercial or like a an orientation at a job that you might have to watch. And yeah, there's a lot of um corporate jargon and technical bullshit. And as the first couple tracks roll out It seems like maybe the whole album is about technology, right? And then eventually it veers into some more personal stuff. But yeah, as you first look at it, you know, inside, there's no lyric sheets. It's just graphs and charts and shit. And the actual music credits, they're mixed in there. But uh, yeah, it's a bizarre, you know, As Ace is wont to be, uh, another quirky little theme, like, let's say, Spirit World Field Guide. Is that what it's called? I always mix up the words. It's kind of an odd one. But that one also starts with an intro, like, you know, I will be your guide through the spirit world, and, you know, that kind of a thing. But, man, I would say his last three albums in particular, because I do like the Spirit World record, And it has some great lyrics on it. But production-wise, it kind of sounds like it was recorded on a laptop. Um, You know, really, really harsh vocals and stuff. But this, uh, I would say these last three albums with Malibu Ken, Garbology, and Integrated Tech Solutions, man, his production is so good. And if you've been following his career for a long time like I have, when let's see labor days came out blockhead was making his beats and that's when i first heard him and i loved the music on that record i thought it paired so well with lucy ford you know atmosphere and they were both going for these like great melodic bass lines and stuff and then over the next couple albums ace started producing his own beats and it was a drastic change and for the better, right? And over the years, we've got to see his evolution as a producer, whether it's on his solo albums, whether it's on Felt 3, whether it's Blueprints, Vigilante Genesis, or the Hail Mary Mallon records with Aesop and Rob Sonic. And this is another really great sounding record. Uh, you know, the beats are great. Like, even a track on this that's another spoken track where he's actually talking about his recent discovery of vincent van gogh and how he may have changed his perception of his work just from one particular painting and a spoken interlude or whatever is maybe something that you might skip but i actually really like the story i even said on was it on this record I don't know. I said, Vincent Van Gogh, I'm undersold. When I turn to dust, though, the rest will know. Oh, yeah, it's on this record. Uh, I think it's the song Spotlight on Demented Inventive Energy. But, yeah, when I say Vincent Van Gogh, I'm undersold, it's because we talk about, as Ace does here, that Vincent Van Gogh is now world-renowned, but at the time, he died penniless and unsuccessful, and, you know, in general, kind of shunned for you know losing his mind. And then he only became appreciated, his work became appreciated after his death. And, yeah, I think that it's cool that he discussed that a little bit, even if it wasn't necessarily in a rhyme. But my point was, he's got so many great beats that he can put this awesome, funky track behind that little story that he tells. And, in a way, just kind of throw it away. Like I'm listening to it in the background, going like, "Oh, man, you could flow this pattern over it. You could fucking ride the beat like this." And he's got so many bangers that he's just content to like, oh, yeah, you know, i'll just I'll just drop that behind my Van Gogh story. That'll be fine. you know And so, yeah, great beats on the record. I sat down with the rap genius app as I do, and I've I've really come to, this year especially, appreciate Ace's lyrics and understand them in a way that I hadn't in a long time. Because I think the earlier stuff, you're able to piece some more together. And then the record, The Impossible Kid, he's more autobiographical and you're able to get a lot more out of it. But sometimes his stuff is so dense and obtuse that you've got to sit down and see the words on a page to really get it. And I did that with Malibu Ken, I did that with Spirit World, I did that with Garbology and it really gave me a deeper appreciation of songs that I'd heard a bunch of times, you know? <laughs> like, oh my god, that's that's what he's talking about, you know, because he has such a broad vocabulary and such a way of using imagery and metaphor and stuff that it's so easy to get lost you know or to get hung up on a line and then he's three lines ahead and you're like oh shit okay well and so i sat down with the lyrics for i think the second half of this record today from anyway the last half a dozen songs or so and you know was able to digest it a little bit more but yeah i mean there's some interesting ones that stand out even without the lyric sheets like uh, there's a song about his obsession with pigeons and wanting to draw a thousand of them and uh things like that you know kind of reminds me of like he'll have a story on skeleton about camu tao giving himself a haircut and uh you know just weird little stories like that so there's some cool shit like that on here typical aesop stuff and there's some stuff that's in the theme of of technology and and human evolution and stuff and yeah man there's there's some really great stuff i wish that i could uh analyze this in more detail but Again, I'm still getting to know it, and I really don't have any complaints. I don't think there's a single thing on this record that I would change, and that's pretty much true of everything we're going to talk about from here on in. So that's number six, ASOP Rock Integrated Tech Solutions. I hope maybe they're hiring there at ITS because I need a new job. Next is another album that is new to me i heard it a couple times earlier this year in my wife's car again you know we go on road trips and stuff she would put it on spotify so i could hear it this is an artist who is young and new which is typically not my thing and pop right and so we talked about her on I don't know, last year or the year before's episode. This is Olivia Rodrigo. The album is called Guts. And the album before this was her debut and it shocked me with how good it was. It was one of those things that captured adolescence in a way that was so timeless. It related to the kids her age and her peers and younger, but it also related to so many of us that were older because it it tapped into those emotions and that experience and that sort of shared coming of age period of your life that everyone could be transported back to that moment if you were older or they were living it at the time if they were younger. And it was a bit of a mixture of pop and pop punk and acoustic and some other shit. And in a way that some people, maybe like Avril Lavigne, had tried a little bit, but, or even Paramore to some extent, you know, as they experimented and broadened their styles. But I think, and actually, there was a Paramore comparison that led to uh, credit you know like a legal issue that led to a credit being issued on one of the hit singles which i thought listening to the songs back to back was bullshit because it's just a loose similarity of a vocal phrasing over a common chord change like i don't know what the fuck you want but i thought that album was very inspired she had one producer and co-writer on pretty much the whole thing and Blew me away. When the second one came out, I watched, I think it was the first music video, and it was called Vampire. And that song, once again, fucking blew me away. The video is great. It's like this whole metaphor for the music industry, kind of taking advantage of her youth and her naivety. And sucking her dry and then discarding her afterward you know and the song was actually shocking to me because it has this incredible dramatic crescendo into the chorus with these soaring vocals i mean she's a great singer i think if you don't like the the fully produced versions which i i really do um But if you don't, look up her NPR Tiny Desk concert. And it's very clever because her big single at the time was called Driver's License and she filmed it at the DMV. They filmed the Tiny Desk concert at the DMV. It was fucking perfect. Her band is great. It's very stripped down and it's live. So check that out if you're not on board with Olivia yet. But I watched the video for Vampire. I was so impressed by the song, and that chorus just pulled the rug out from under me. I actually thought, oh no, they should have saved that. <laughs> the song is is fucking perfect. It's amazing. And it was such a big payoff so early in the song that I actually felt like, oh man they should have put another verse in there before they gave it to us or given us like half a chorus and not, not give us the big peak moment because, Oh my God, it's so powerful. And you only hear it three times in the song But I thought, wow, that is such a sledgehammer fucking chorus that, uh, I almost wish that they, they, they teased us a little bit with it, but, great great song and then the next song was bad idea right that was the next video that i saw and it was very teenager talk not even rapping but just yeah kind of kind of talk rapping over the verses and uh, very like juvenile, stupid decision-making kind of way of like, oh man, I fucking know I shouldn't be doing this and it's self-destructive, but I'm going to do it anyway. And man, this guy sucks, but he's so dreamy. And man, I like him, but I also want to destroy his life. And then I want to win him back after I do that. And, um, you know, or I guess I'm mixing that up a little bit with get him back. But um, (laughs) both of those songs have a little bit of that. But I think it was the whole... Spoken, rattling all these thoughts, kind of unhinged and atonally over the song that was like, "I don't know about this one." And so, when I finally heard the record, I was a little bit reticent to accept it. You know, I was sort of cautiously optimistic at that point because the first song was a knockout, and then I'm like, "Oh, I hope there's not much of this," you know. And I think she, I haven't listened to the first record in a minute, but I think it's fair to say that she did a little bit of that in the past. But the album as a whole is a worthy successor to an impossible debut album to follow. That wasn't the best sentence structure, but you get what I'm saying. I genuinely feel bad as someone who's struggled my whole life to just break through on some small level and make a living from music. I also feel bad for young artists in particular, but anyone who has a first album, that's fucking huge. That is ubiquitous all around the world, everywhere you go huge because how do you follow it? everyone's going to expect it and if you can't deliver that same thing then what do you do and so you could go beastie boys did not deliver license to ill again they delivered paul's boutique and it was a commercial flop and they didn't even get to tour on what's now considered maybe their most iconic record or one of them and you could look at a more recent artist like Lord had a massive debut album. And that song was in every movie and commercial. And then the second record came out and it's no more like dark goth girl pop. It's like bright and sunny and colorful and everything's different. And it just isn't the same thing. So how do you beat the sophomore curse? And in this case, I really think that she's done it. I think this is a very strong record. Maybe the only thing I could fault it for is lagging a little bit in the second half. I think they drop get him back at just the right place to kind of energize the back half of the record. But I think we need another one of those. Or I think Vampire could be moved towards the end. Uh, what we do get Teenage Dream closes the album, and it's a quiet acoustic song, and it's reminiscent of the closing acoustic song on the first record that was, you know, I'm like, I hope that you're okay. I think that was the name or something like that. And, you know, there's great lyrics on this whole record and great vocal performances, very interesting chord changes and and great sounding production. You know, the song structures are interesting. And I think what I've come to appreciate about her as a lyricist is I started to think this feels a bit like a journal, a diary, something like that. And I'm like, no, that's not quite right. Because there's something almost less premeditated about it. It's both artfully written and very very deliberate, very effective songwriting. And yet it feels like there's an instantaneous stream of consciousness thing happening here. It feels like we're in her head, because she's able to write, not about experiencing something not about reflecting on it later. But to act on or but to to embody those moments where you're actually in your own head, going back and forth, feeling conflicted. You know, she's kind of able to do it all, but really bring it into her point of view, like you are in her head in that moment. And humans being as conflicted as we are, and contradictory in so many ways, I think, again, that's one of the things that makes her so relatable, it's that I was wronged, right? The whole first record was a breakup record, right? But I have my own part in these decisions, in these outcomes, and I'm a flawed person as well. And so she's very transparent, very honest, and it just feels like a direct line into her thoughts. So, yeah very impressed with this album i don't think many people could have followed that and i'm even more curious now what her third album is going to be because the first one was the biggest selling album of that year i don't know i haven't followed to see if this one is the same but i know it's been very well received tremendously popular and I'm really happy for her. My wife's actually going to see her uh, this coming year, 2024. And the only reason I didn't go is because I just don't think that I can be part of that crowd. I don't think being around, you know, 30,000 screaming, high pitched girls with my hearing problems and general curmudgeonly. Uh, demeanor, I don't think that I would enjoy that experience. But I was like, you know, in a few years, if she does like a theater tour, playing acoustic or something, I'd go see that. No question. I, I'm really a, a, a big fan of these records, and I look forward to playing this more because I, I don't think I've even listened to it half a dozen times yet. So I'm still getting to know some of the ones that we're talking about here. But that's number five, Guts by Olivia Rodrigo. Take another sip from my water as we get into the top four. This is actually a trial run for me because the Bat Fanatic podcast, we are losing our co-hosts, Ben and Evan, and I will not be recording in person in this studio anymore with the all of us anyway my co-hosts will now be spread across the country and so my hope was i could buy this new webcam i could set up a separate audio interface here so i'm running on my other computer and we could try to do some legit video stuff so this is my trial run to see how it goes and you may see some more video content from me on the bat fanatic podcast anyway top four. This is one I maybe didn't expect to put here, even the first time I heard it. But this is a a band that I've loved for 20 years. As I mentioned, I'm not an emo guy. And I'm not a screamo guy. And I did not enjoy those bands co-opting our scene in the early 2000s. But In many cases, there is a Trojan horse that ushers in all the imitations, right? And to me, the original was The Used. The Used came out, produced by John Feldman. That's the way me and my friends discovered them, seeing that at the record store and being like, oh, what's this produced by John Feldman from Goldfinger? I love Goldfinger. Let's check it out. Sight unseen. Hadn't heard a thing. And that first track, Maybe Memories, I've never heard someone do what Burt McCracken did on that song where it starts with a guttural, powerful scream. He's one of the best screamers on the planet as far as I'm concerned. And mid-word, he switches to an angelic clean singing voice. And I thought, how the fuck do you do that? Not only that, but how do you write that? How do you come up with that fucking idea? And so where so many people took the sing scream and they made it, they came up, they watched the Zen of screaming DVD and they figured out how to do the thing with their throat to emulate the fucking thing. And then they'd have their whiny thing. And then they have their screamy thing or whatever. You have this guy, Burt McCracken, who's climbing the scaffolding and fucking screaming so hard that he's throwing up on stage and they're getting banned from clubs in their home state of Utah. Right. There's no substitute for the authenticity that this band Brings to the table. They were doing something wholly original and they fucking bled for those songs. And not to be confused with The Bled, also from around that time. But amazing band, great songwriters. And particularly with the second and third albums, John Feldman's production quality really helped raise the bar. And so it was great watching them kind of one-up each other as they grow together. Now, over the years, they've kind of done what Rise Against has done, right? Bill Stevenson and Jason Livermore produced all of the Rise Against albums, well, except for Wolves and except for, I don't know, that other one. And whenever they don't, oh, Siren Song, right? And whenever they don't, It's pretty good, but it's not the same, right? And so when I heard The Used had a new album and it was recorded during the pandemic and Bert was talking about how he was going through so much and had uh, so many things to get off his chest and it was a dark period for him and he was was really proud of the writing and that they reunited with John Feldman. I thought, ooh, I got to check this out. And so while I love their early records and I have many of their albums, they're not necessarily in every album I have to own band. And I was so glad when I picked this up because it feels like they didn't miss a step from that third record. Like it feels like you could place it back there with their early and best music which is very interesting because this band in today's lineup is the original singer and bass player, uh, Jeff. And Quinn, the guitarist, left years ago. And this new guy is able to, and forgive me for saying a new guy, I don't know, maybe it says his name in here. Okay, there's Dan Whitesides is the drummer and Joey Bradford on guitar. I think they had one other guitarist on the Canyon record, which I actually heard this year for the first time. It's a experimental double album that came out several years back, and it is fascinating. It's their only album, I think, that was recorded all analog, and it's mixed very natural you know feels like a live band in a room and it is bizarre and exciting and really interesting and this one is very much a return to form They're kind of back to formula they know what they do the best and they're just killing it there isn't a lull on the whole record there isn't a single song i would skip it's basically a perfect album like i don't have any complaints whatsoever with this album I know that some fans of the used, you know, the last couple of years, I spent uh, a little more time on Reddit. You know, I got that app a while back and sometimes those fan communities have good discussions. Sometimes it'll bore you to fucking tears. Like what's the most underrated album again, 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 the same shit, but, I like the discussions when a new record comes out, see what other people think about it, maybe get to have those conversations and uh, you know share an opinion that I say earnestly and then get downvoted to hell for no fucking reason. It's a blast over there. But I saw some people who were actually disappointed in this record because they felt like, oh, they play it safe with John Feldman and they kind of just do the same thing. But to me, this doesn't feel like an imitation of, of an earlier record you know you can feel when bands like i mentioned metallica earlier right i think that death magnetic is a very special album it's from 2008 it was five years after the disaster that was saint anger and these guys spent like 15 years getting shit they got shit for selling out for the black album right it's all slow and mainstream now they got shit for cutting their hair and wearing makeup for load and reload. And oh, it's not thrash metal anymore. It's crap. It's alternative. You know, they got shit with a fucking snare drum on Saint Anger and the no guitar solos and the Napster shit. You know, they've just gone through hell. And they get with Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin's like, fucking, tune your guitars back to normal. Go listen to your old shit and play like that again. Remember why you started. This band. And so they made a record that was a return to form, but felt at times, mostly in terms of arrangement, that they were trying to regain their old powers, right? They were trying to copy, okay, what would a younger us do? to this song right and so it led to some clunky structures and overly long intros and things like that but overall a very strong album toxic positivity is not that album this does not miss a step it feels organic it feels inspired they are in it and this new guitar player is very adept at doing the heavier side of that stuff, like the second and third albums, some of my favorite stuff from the band, some of that kind of single string heavy stuff like Billy Corgan, The Pumpkins. Um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of the sound of this record. I think that John Feldman's style, for whatever reason... Works so much better with The Used than it does with some of these pop punk records that he's made with Blink or, you know, Avril or whatever. They can be over the top. And for some reason, they find this sweet spot together with Feldy and The Used. And I couldn't be happier with it. So check out Toxic Positivity if you're a fan of this band. Top three, here we go. I just finished listening to this album again before I started recording. Like I said, I've been binging these all day just to keep it fresh in my mind. This album has the worst album art since Brother Ali just shipped a disc in an empty case in 2020. This is The Foo Fighters, Not that you could fucking see it anywhere, anywhere at all. It's called, but here we are. And what's crazy to me is as of this recording, their drummer, Taylor Hawkins, has not yet been dead for two years. He died in March of 2022. And this record has been out for a while, which is crazy. And it wasn't made public at the time, but Dave Grohl's mom, who's also an author, I believe, died back to back with Taylor Hawkins in a very short amount of time. And so instead of blowing up the band, you know, like he's been through this with Nirvana. And I really, really felt for him. And the other guys, so, you know, Pat had been through it with Nirvana as well. And, you know, uh, I believe it was Darby Crash in the Germs, his first band, you know, uh, had, a, had a death in all of his main bands. And it's, it's terrible. I love Taylor Hawkins. I got to meet him one time. It's really uh, special. I may have told that story on the show before. But apparently they lost Virginia Grohl. And Taylor Hawkins back to back. And instead of dissolving the band, Dave got to writing, put his heart into these songs, and just decided to play the drums on the album himself, like he had for the first two Foo Fighters records and part of the third. And, you know, Dave is regarded as one of the best rock drummers alive. And what's interesting to me is it wasn't explicitly said who played the drums on this when the singles started coming out. And I wasn't really hearing it because Dave is such a powerhouse and yet he's very much just playing the songs. He's playing to uh, the lyrics and to the guitar parts and, you know, he's not overplaying, going wild like you would with Queens of the Stone Age or Nine Inch Nails when he shows up for guest drums on something, you know, or even what was it called? I think it was Dream Widow, the metal songs that he recorded for their horror movie. It's like the last thing they did before Taylor died. Studio 666, which is a play on their recording studio 606. But yeah, he's not going wild like that. And it's mixed in a way that's different too. Uh, I think his name's Greg Kirsten as a producer. I'd look it up, but the text is fucking white on white. But he produced their last couple albums, and you know he's a pop producer. Did Adele and some other big records, but he's not a, a real rock guy. And so I don't know that sonically, <laughs> like my favorite stuff sonically from the band or the records with Gil Norton. He did The Color and the Shape. He did Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace. And in fact, that one specifically is my favorite sounding album of theirs. Drums are punchy, meaty. The guitars are fucking huge. And this album, drum wise, has an odd sound. It's It's like they cranked up the treble on the snare, because I don't know if they didn't mic it right or what, but they like boosted the shit out of the high end and then it in turn boosted all the cymbals that were bleeding in to it. I don't think they did it on the drum bust, like the overall drum kit. It sounds like they were trying to boost the, the top end attack on the snare and it's just like coming out with the hi-hat and stuff. Because when you do that and then you compress it, you know, it's a mix and master. It just like has a sh- sort of gross frequency that's just omnipresent on the record. And so, what I mean is that usually with Dave, it's like the kick and snare are the fucking heaviest, loudest fucking things you've ever heard. And so, at first, it just felt a little more reserved, maybe a little more controlled. And so I didn't notice that it was him until uh, I listened to more of the record. And of course, the band now has Josh Freeze on drums. And if you aren't aware, for some reason, I, I don't know why you listen to a music podcast, a punk rock podcast and not know, but Josh Freeze is from the Vandals and he's played with fucking everybody, Nine Inch Nails, as I mentioned. I saw him once with Sting. I mean, I think that... Kind of shows the scope but he's played with fucking everybody and at first i wasn't sure if he's a great fit because he's a bit of a chameleon but he is also a very on the nose kind of player you know taylor hawkins had a bit more of a swing to his playing and it was interesting to watch i think they did a live stream to announce his role in the band. And they played some old songs and some new ones, I think. And he was great because many of us saw glimpses during the live stream of the Taylor Hawkins tribute show. There were a lot of different drummers. The standout being Shane Hawkins, uh, middle school age son of Taylor, I believe, was his uh, rough age. And he was just a monster. He demolished it. He played it. Better, like he, I think he played Everlong and one other song, and he played it better than Dave and Taylor to me. I was like, Holy crap, this kid's a monster! But you know, he's a kid, and so when they landed on Josh, I was like, Oh shit, okay. And then the album came out, and it's really strong. I think that this is another band who you know I talked about this earlier with Blink for example or mentioned Green Day or even Metallica like a band that's been around this long you deviate, experiment, you try some things and not every record is going to be that peak level best thing ever you know like we talk about the smashing pumpkins i don't lose love for them because i don't like the certain album as much as the last one um but you know you get a couple of those in a row and it's like oh that's that's too bad you know maybe you're not as excited for the next record but i like to uh stay the course and uh, see what they come up with anyway this one being very special circumstances like the blink record i had to check it out right away and to me this is the best thing they've done since wasting light in 2011 and they're a prolific band they've had a lot of music since then and this is the most consistently great set of foo fighter songs in more than a decade and it's fucked up that it did take a tragedy to achieve that but just evaluating this album on its own for what it is is very strong and it's reminiscent of sort of the mid-2000s Foo Fighters I it's odd that the album in your honor which is their double album from 2005 I believe had an all rock disc and an all acoustic disc this is what I said thrice did with the alchemy index they separated their styles and what was a very dynamic band? They did the Nirvana quiet, loud pixies thing, right? With the color and the shape, and there was nothing left to lose. Their second and third albums had a lot of that great dynamic stuff. You hear a song like February Stars or something, like you would never expect that beautiful, quiet song to explode at the end, going to this big rock outro with thunderous drums and those amazing. Th- thick mesa guitar layers and then in your honor here is a straight rock disc here is a straight acoustic disc they never even done acoustic but it's like all the mellow shit on one record all the loud shits on the other one and it's good and it has some of their most memorable songs like best of you of course but I also listened to the acoustic side a lot more. I thought that, okay, Dave's kind of just hollering a lot. You're not getting The dynamic front man that he usually is, right. He's kind of just doing that voice a lot. I'm sorry. I did that, but um, you know, he's got a good softer voice. He's got a good, you know, yelling voice, kind of like I was imitating there. And he's got a vicious scream and, You know, we were kind of getting like a one dynamic record to some extent. Very good album. But uh, I, I did have those criticisms of it. And for whatever reason, this album, but here we are, feels a bit like In Your Honor in the best way possible. It's something about the simplified song structures to some extent, the guitar parts and then speaking of song structures the way the album ends is crazy because there's all these songs about loss and grief and processing this stuff and they have this song that's called The Teacher because his mom was a teacher and I don't know, I think in a way that the The tragedy is a teacher, you know, the lessons learned and all that. And it's like a 10-minute epic that's kind of in like two or three movements. And they've never really done something so progressive in that way. And it's quite a fucking feat. So I think that is definitely worth mentioning. But then they follow it with this delicate tearjerker it's called rest and and i should say even leading into it there's a song with dave's daughter violet doing harmonies you know when it's he's talking about losing his mom and her grandma you know and it's like what you know what what am i gonna do now basically and and uh it might be the song where he's like quoting his mom kind of you know imitating her like hey kid what you going to do tomorrow you know and he's he's kind of trying to wake up from this nightmare where she's not there anymore and so this whole theme of the record kind of climaxes in the teacher and they've primed you in every way to get to this point point. and then after that giant epic comes just this somber almost almost lullaby of grief called rest and it is like February stars in that it has this sucker punch twist at the end where the guitars and the keyboards and drums and everything start ringing out and they put all these big vocal layers and it's just the most beautiful ending to this record. Um, Dave has really painted some vivid pictures that I think anyone dealing with loss can relate to. You know, I made an album loosely about this stuff called Daydream. It was one of the only singer-songwriter kind of pop rock records that I've made. And I had some people really praise that And I felt good about the way I was able to articulate those things. But Dave really, as a writer, is bringing his A-game to honor those people in his life that he's lost. So I cannot recommend it enough, Foo Fighters, but here we are. And now here we are in the top two. And we've got multiple genres left. So, any guesses as I sip my water? And as I sip my soda that I'm sure somebody spit in, player haters ball. First video podcast, how's it going? You tired of looking at my fucking ugly head yet, huh? Can you see my cat sleeping right by the uh, microphone stand? He's been there the whole time. That's Bruce Wayne. Master Bruce, as I call him. And speaking of comic books, my favorite rap group around is Czarface. That's right. This is 7L on Beats and Production, Esoteric, and Inspected Deck, the Rebel INS from Wu-Tang Clan, as the two vocalists of the group. And these guys have been banging out an album a year since like, 2013 15 something like that and when i first heard there was a wu-tang spinoff that was like comics themed i picked it up first time i saw it it had awesome artwork like this like they all do when i opened it it was like a fucking like a eight inch pop-up like you open it and it it's like a pop-up book of the Zarface character. It stands out at you and it's fucking crazy. I was so stoked. The record was all talking about comic books. It had no choruses. I complained about the guest singer on the Black Thought song. It had no choruses. It was just rapping. Maybe some scratching here and there. One song had George Carlin samples. I've been sampling George Carlin for fucking ever. He was on... My first full-length CD in 2002. (laughs) I mean, this felt like these guys are making this for me. So I'm sure I've reviewed their music on these top 10 lists before. They are the group I would most like to feature on my next record. I've even written a song about it. This is maybe the second podcast I've publicly mentioned that because I just fucking want to will it to happen. But this album to me is their strongest in years. And the great thing about that is it's their major label debut. They've been so prolific and so hardworking, cranking out these great records and not just. Zarface, but they did two records with Zarface with MF Doom and in between those, Zarface with Ghostface Killer, also from Wu-Tang. So these guys have a crap load of music. And I love all the records. They're all very good. But there was something special about those first two. They were consistent, Front to back, right, and as they went on, they experimented with different sounds. you know that doom album had way different types of beats on it. I mean, they featured open Mike Eagle, right? You wouldn't think of open mike eagle Eagle for boom bap break beats. He and I have even talked about that shit. that's the last thing he wants to rap over. So when I bought this album, I was kind of blown away because I expected a little more of that diversity and uh, uh, less certainly for a major label album sampling breakbeats and to have that, you know, super uptempo old school sound that the early albums had and Zartificial Intelligence, as it's called, has everything that I wanted from the group and more because esoteric like here's the thing Zarface has made me appreciate inspected deck as one of if not my favorite member of wu-tang in recent years and i bought a bunch of his solo albums as well i actually did the math this year i have more than 40 albums from wu-tang and its members it's fucking crazy but Czarface made me really appreciate Inspector Deck. He is constantly clever. He's very efficient. He's not like Ghostface is a big personality, right? And Method Man, like some of the star players in Wu Tang, are big personalities, ODB, you know? And I think it's easy to get lost in the mix when you weren't one of those first albums to drop wu-tang did that big thing with like no you signed the group and we all dropped together and then rizzo was like all right let's crank out all your solo albums they didn't get through everybody and so deck was kind of one of the later ones to drop solo and for that reason i and many other people sort of overlooked his amazing fucking prowess on the mic and that said I've completely fallen in love with his music, but there are so many songs where Esoteric will have the best line on the song. Like, he's very good about... Like, they'll do this mic-passing shit, and they might have a great guest on there, but kind of no one's going to get over on Esso. Like, he's always got the fucking... the memorable, funny wordplay and this record is no exception i remember the song Zarsenic was stood out to me um but the reason that i i talk about him is because in the last couple albums it's less of a 50 50 and it seems like this is really esoteric's passion project and there are two songs on this record that are his best work in the whole series. And I, for some reason, I think it's because Zarface drops so fucking much, while I did go into the Deck albums as I'm trying to uh, gradually complete my Wu-Tang collection, I haven't listened to the Esoteric at 7L albums that uh, came out independent of Zarface. And so in terms of the body of work that I know, which is these last 10 years or so. The song Mama's Basement and the song Marvel at That are Esoteric's best. So number five and number 11, if you can see this, is it backwards to you? I think it's backwards to you this whole time. But anyway, Left My Comics in My Mama's Basement. Very simple chorus from a group that doesn't usually have a chorus. And it's a song about going back home. And maybe circumstances aren't great, but hey, remember those comics I used to read when I was a kid? Uh, I think they're downstairs. I'm going to go get them, right? And, you know, there's a great line. Oh, I should have written it down. And it was like, uh, some of them are old. Some of them are faded. Some of them are something. None of them are graded, which is funny to me because... I've talked a lot about how I don't really care about CGC uh, grading of a comic to tell you like, oh, this I'm going to give this book. You have a score in terms of its condition, you know, and people get bummed out. They're like, oh, this is only a whatever the fuck. I don't like it as much. I only like my 9.8. You know, I'm like, oh, that's. I don't want someone else to tell me I shouldn't like the the book that I love. As much as i do because it was assigned a number and so i'm not a fan of of that in general and uh he's not making a comment on that just the fact that they're old you know your collection from when you're a kid before you know how to treat comics and uh i don't know i love that song little nostalgic trip back home digging through your old stuff looking for it see if it's still there And then Marvel at that, this song is perfect. And these are two solo esoteric songs, which I feel like is a little unusual to have two solo songs. Marvel at that, it's like him and his kid, where his kid is yelling out a letter of the alphabet. You know, lots of rappers have done alphabet games, but the, the premise is they're on a road trip, and he wants to name Marvel characters for every letter of the alphabet. And so not only does he do it, but he does it within the confines of a conversation with his kid. And so it's very amusing, um, very clever, well-written. I just, it's one of my favorite things they've ever done. And on top of that, I mentioned wanting these guys on my next record. The first song I wrote for the album is called DC versus Marvel. And I've written a lot of comic book references in my rhymes. If you listen to the Bad Fanatic podcast, our season finale that just came out, episode number 71, it opens with an edit of all of my DC comics references in raps from 2007 to 2023. There's so many. Because I've been talking about this shit that I love the whole time. And that's why I said The Dark Knight of Rap ever since 2008. And so what I decided to do is like, man, you know, it be fun. Like, if I could get the Czarface guys, what kind of song would I do? And I was like, man, they're always talking about comics. I would have to do a song that's about comics. And I was like, maybe I do DC and they do marvel right that could work and so i came up it'll be dc versus marvel and so then i thought shit how am i gonna write a dc comics verse that's better than all the other shit that i've already said how do i come up with more characters and stuff i haven't already talked about right and the closing song on my new album demented inventive energy features dmc from fucking Run DMC. And we were talking about comics, and we met at a Comic-Con, and so my verse in the song, I'm going all in, it's super fucking tight, and it's all comic references. So I just did that, and I'm like, how the fuck am I going to do it again? And then I'm driving home from work, which is when I had the thought, and the driving home, and I thought, oh, man, you know what would be funny is is there's a character named Zatanna. She performs magic and her spells are made by speaking in reverse. So when you read her dialogue on the page, the letters are backwards. And so I was like, oh, opening line, ain't going back on my word like Zatanna Zatara. I'll lay your ass in the curb like you're sparring Katana. You know, she's uh, from the Suicide Squad. She got the fucking big sword and shit. And then I thought, uh, Sean and Katana Murphy are the authors of the Batman White Knight series, and everyone calls her Katana by mistake. So I said, lay your ass in the curve like you're sparring Katana. Sean and Katana, White Knight, all of Arkham's a goner, gone insane. John Crane, something's off with the water. And then so it just happened, man. It just fucking came out, and it was great. And I put a fucking sick, break beat to it and then i was like oh oh and i had a fucking starter line for a marvel verse and so then i wrote this fucking marvel verse because you know, i love x-men and spider-man and so many of these guys too uh, it's just i don't read them i haven't read them since i was a kid i watched the movies so i know it's a big detour but this is all Zarface shit so i wrote then another whole reference filled verse but it was all marvel and then at the end of it i used a sample of david ayer the writer director from suicide squad when he was uh debuting that trailer at comic-con uh he walked out there and said "Fuck marvel <laughs> and it was uh, a whole thing and so i sampled that and i said never mind what david said Fuck marvel The rivalry, as far as I can see, is just harmful, right? So I've got this whole fucking arc now. It's like, all right, I got the DC shit, and then I got the Marvel shit, and then it's like, but hey, it's all cool, man. I love both teams. No need to take sides. I'm like, all right, cool. That would be great. And then I could get these dudes to rap in between me and we like a DC into Marvel, into DC to Marvel, or we could go DC, DC, Marvel, Marvel, you know, possibilities. Anyway, brainstorming. I'm poor. I don't have the money to even offer this idea to them. But I stow it away. I did it a few months ago this summer. And it's just sitting on my Dropbox. This record comes out, and I'm listening to it the first time and the song marvel at that is not only the same like he's rattling off as many references as he can but to the alphabet and it's roughly the same tempo and kind of vibe you know mine's got a little more of that fucking fuck you fire to it but that's just because it's me and it always does But um I listened to it and I was like, oh my God, this is, no wonder I love it so much. It feels like kind of a sister song to what I actually want to do with them. And so it just makes me more excited at the possibility. So again, I'm just putting this out into the world that I hope I can make this happen from my next record. There have been some miracle features that come through unexpectedly, like DMC volunteering to be on my last record. That was amazing. And there have been other ones where I reached out and it just didn't happen. So who knows? But Marvel at that is not only a, a fun song and a great piece of writing, but it's also like very exciting to me in terms of the possibilities of what we could uh, what we could come up with together. You know, maybe we'll get him to switch to DC and have Deck do Marvel or some shit like that. I don't know. It'd be super fucking fun. I've got Crosby working on the the beat and developing it a bit more from what I had. Uh we'll we'll see what happens in 2024. But that leads us to oh, by the way, just fucking buy this album. I mean, if, if you don't listen to their shit already, start here. And then go back to the beginning because they have so many gems. It's insane. I would love to see how long my Face playlist is in my, in my iTunes. It's got to be insane. But my number one spot, this will be no surprise to anyone. It's the same way we opened the show. Right? With my first autograph that I showed you. That's right. It is... Metallica, 72 Seasons. I don't know why I took it out of the sleeve. Now you can't really see the album. But it's got these nice photos of the band. You can look at those. Anyway, it's the Yellow Album. They have the Black Album. Now it's the Yellow Album. This is my favorite band. And their last album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, really knocked it out of the park for me over time I felt like there are songs in the middle of that record that should be cut maybe in the second half and yet it's so hard for me I don't dislike any of them I understand the lineage of those styles and where they came from And I think it's cool to see him represented. So it'll be like, oh, man, the album's feeling like it's slowing down. Maybe this one should get... I don't know. It has that awesome fucking part, though. Like, yeah, you can't get rid of that one. You know, so I had this sort of attachment to all the songs, even if I felt like it was front-loaded a bit with the best songs. And uh, this album... 72 seasons is more consistent to me. I went to the movie theater the night before the album came out because they had a ticketed movie theater experience. I've done this for live shows. You can watch a live stream of a concert in the theater. You know, my wife most recently went to go see the Taylor Swift Eras Tour film in the theaters. and. In this case, Metallica did an album listening party. So there were little music videos and interviews with the band, and they played every song in a loud theater with all their fans. And it was really cool. And I think the first song they released was called Lux Eterna, which someone corrected James, and now he started calling it Lux Eterna. But that song was like the most short and sweet shit they've written in decades, maybe aside from the title track of Hardwired to Self Destruct. But it was like, it's in the key of A. It feels like straight off Kill Em All. It's got the double bass parts and everything from Lars. And it's a really cool song. And James is really fucking belting the chorus with say hitting some high notes at his age. I mean, these guys are 60 now. and They're still playing fast, thrash shit. And it's pretty much unprecedented. You know? No one was starting a speed metal band in their 60s. No one was starting a hardcore punk band in their 50s. And so, like, all these pioneers that are still around from late 70s, early 80s, you know, I mentioned uh, Jello Biafra recently, like, You know, all of those guys, they're the first generation of people who are physically aging through this really demanding physical music, this aggressive music. And I was so impressed with that first track. And when I went to the theater, I think maybe I had seen a couple other music videos uh, i think if darkness had a sun you know i'll also say on that note cuz that title <laughs> there are lyrical moments on this record even the verses of lux aeterna feel a little bit like lords of summer and you know if darkness had a sun and here i am a bathing holy water it's like okay i mean lyrically there are times where i'm like this is maybe not the sharpest and then there are other moments where i'm like oh this is a james record you know like hardwired felt like a lars record Because Lars is a master of arrangements. He'll take all of James' little riffs and he'll fucking run it through this brilliant prism that becomes these sprawling, epic songs. And this record felt like a James record because it's got really unique vocal phrasing you know, if you listen to a song like Shadows Follow, track two, I think that's my favorite song on the album. You know, the verses are like the the timing is so different from what he would normally do. Some of the melodies on these songs are so different than what he would do. And like James's studio performances have been amazing like, for 20 years. Even the St. Anger record, which is not a good album. Anyone will tell you that. The band themselves will be like, all right, we're going to play one from your favorite album. But his vocals on that record are still pretty fucking good. And so whether he's going through re- rehab, recovery, whatever he's going through, he has always managed to summon that fucking power and grit of one of the most recognizable signature voices in the history of rock you know he's one of the best frontmen to ever do it and yet i haven't heard him experiment and sound so fresh and excited as i have on this record it really gave me numerous Moments of pause to like rewind and really appreciate the fact that he's this far into his career there are more than forty years into it as a band and he's still pushing himself to come up with new shit and I'm like, how are you gonna sing this live and I've seen him do some of these songs and I'm like, yeah he fucking does you know I know they play all their their songs a half step lower but still I'm like i that is Ambitious. It's fucking ballsy and it's interesting, and I really respect it. I think there are a couple criticisms of the album that are valid. For whatever reason, it could be like I talked about with the Foo Fighters, just miking, bleed, whatever. But when they compress this fucking thing down in the mix, the hi-hats got so loud, like obnoxiously loud. And if you know anything about Lars, it's that ever since Justice for All, he likes the drums to be the loudest instrument in the mix. And so if the hi-hat is really obnoxious and the drums are turned up all the way, there's kind of no ignoring it. And instead of cutting out the parts where like, he's keeping time like let's say the full band is playing and then they'll stop and the guitar part will play just for a second right or the bass guitar will play for a second rob Trujillo, killing it well you know typically in the studio you would listen to the metronome you count on sticks you know or maybe in some cases you count on the hi-hats right there are so many moments on this record where Lars is just counting through all the breaks on his hi-hats. And I love Lars. I'm not one of those people who going to talk shit about him. But because of the mix and because of his tendency to play through all the breaks on the hats, uh, it does get a little tiring. And there's times where it's literally drowning out the riff, that, like it's starting a new riff, and you kind of can't hear it until the whole band comes in with the second guitar. So I think that's a valid criticism of it and Kirk Hammett has been given some shit. I think ever since Death Magnetic, it's sort of you, you can't win a little bit if you're Kirk Hammett because you've proven yourself on all these early records, have all these singable, memorable solos that every guitar player has tried to learn and then got experimental with Load and Reload and then with Saint Anger, it was like, Fuck it, man. No solos. I don't have to prove anything to you. I'm not here to show off. Let's just write some songs. (sighs) Fine. And when they play those songs live, nowadays, he actually does put in some solos again. Oh. But what's unfortunate is when he started soloing again for Death Magnetic, so these last three albums, There are moments of greatness. And then there are other parts where he's kind of just doing fast pentatonic shit. Like just garbled, you know, descending lines. And I'm not even one of those people who thinks he overuses his wah pedal. I think that's part of his signature sound. I was obsessed with it. I bought a crybaby when I was a kid so I could play Metallica solos. And I I still think that's rad. And I listen to Metallica every day. I literally go to sleep every night listening to Master of Puppets. And I watch their live clips and their, their full live concerts all the time. Kirk is not doing his best work. And what I said about James... As I was saying it to you, I could not help but think of how that reflects on Kirk, who, from what I'm told, actually delivered a brilliant instrumental solo album this year. They had some great guitar playing. I haven't heard it because, again, there's no, I don't think there was a CD version. And uh, that's how I prefer to listen. But um, yeah, he is not really delivering. On the solos and his method has been to go in the studio and improvise several different versions and then leave and Lars will sit there with Greg Fiddleman the producer and they will chop it up and they'll come up with a version they like they'll make a comp take of all the different solos stitched together and well that's how it is now and what that affords Kirk to do in his mind is improv at shows because he's been playing the same solos for 40 years. So it gets a little tiring and I can't imagine, I cannot put myself in those shoes because they do in one tour what I probably do in 10 years of shows. I mean, they will go and play for three years, almost nonstop in support of a new album. I think their last album they toured from 2016 all the way up until the pandemic and had to cancel shows. And so these guys have played even their deepest cuts hundreds of times. And I can't relate to that, but I can imagine that it's got to get boring. So Kirk's mentality is, I'm going to wing it, and then it shows I can improvise and i'm not going to be beholden to this oh well i wrote this thing and it's the counter melody uh that plays off kind of a vocal and so it's got to be the same thing every night he's just like all right i'm gonna go in and fucking see what happens and then at the shows i'm gonna do whatever i'm feeling in that moment i might play it the way it's on the record or i might play something totally new and i get it but as someone who I know wishes he was more involved in the creative process, he's not really taking his opportunities to elevate the song. And Kirk is a great writer. He's a great arranger. His classic solos are dynamic. They have a build to them. They know when to be fast and frantic. They know when to be, legato and let it ring and they know when to hit that bend or that harmonic for the most emotional impact in the song you know there's a reason why they have to play creeping death every night and it's that fucking bridge and that solo you know it's unfortunate that one of my biggest influences has sort of Shrugged it off at this point. Like at the same time, you'll see him go on Howard Stern and talk about acquiring this greeny guitar, this Les Paul, which I love because they used to always play ESPs. And I was like, oh, why are you using these EMG pickups and shit? You could afford anything in the world. So now they play a lot of Gibsons and I like it. But he's clearly so invested still in being a guitar player and the gear, and the tone, and all that stuff. And so it disappoints me a little bit that he has lost the love for the craft. And I don't want to pile on, because a lot of people have complained about this, but Kirk still has some great moments on the record. Um, But yeah, there's other moments um, where it's like, "Ah, geez, can we get one more take? I don't know, just try something. Um, But yeah, I miss him being a little more intentional with his parts that said this is a very consistent album whereas the last one deviated a lot you know there's a couple slow heavy jams in the middle i think you must burn is a song that was compared to sad but true you know there's certain beats that have like really interesting uh, vocals, like really cool ideas in it. And then they'll maybe do like a death magnetic, like they're, you can tell they're thinking too much about the arrangement. Like I think even in shadows follow the end of that song is actually laugh out loud. Funny to me because like, DFS, I take a lot of influence from how they arrange a song in Metallica. Because if we're going to repeat something, we never do it the same way twice. So instead of going four times, we're going to go three and a half, or we're going to go four and a half, or we're going to do, uh, you know, we're going to throw this other chord in here and make it different, you know, lots of different things like that. And so when I listen to them, I've thoroughly analyzed the way they put their songs together. And so if they're like doing a song like atlas rise from the last album it has this insane fucking progression before it even gets to the verse right and as the song builds and grows and meanders it takes you on this whole journey at the end of the song they fucking have multiple callbacks to earlier parts and then to the intro and then fucking end and it's glorious and there are times when they do it on this record where it's like oh yeah you're really just like well Let's do it seven times. And so they'll play the same little fucking tag over and over and over and over and over and over, and and there's seven. And it's like, Jesus, guys. Like, we we get it. You want them all to be different, but, like, it's not a math game. It's, It's a song. So there are certain moments where I felt like I wish they would let instinct override intellect a little bit, um, but overall, really strong record. I think that Chasing Light is a good song that really stands out in my mind. I don't wonder, does this have a track list that I can read, or is it all... Yeah, yeah, here we go. Sorry. These big fold-out things are a little hard to manage. Um, Yeah, Screaming Suicide... That's a good one. Crown of barbed wire, not my favorite. And it's one of those lyrical things. Like he talks about wearing this crown of barbed wire or whatever in the first verse. And then he continues using the same exact language in the chorus. I'm like, okay, if you're going to say the same thing over and over in the chorus, don't already say it. Like there's no, there's no arc to it. Obviously I get the metaphor. Um, Yeah. Anyway, you Must Burn, I mentioned, is a song, he said this on stage, that's about sort of the mob mentality on social media, which I think is funny because this song is, you know, it's not specific enough that it's like taking any kind of political stance or something. But like on my record, Demented Inventive Energy, I have a song called Mod Mentality where I sample Mod Flanders saying, Well, somebody think of the children? So. Much later, when I heard him say, Oh, yeah, you must burn. And that's it's about those people on the internet with their pitchforks and stuff. I'm like, That's kind of funny. Um, too far gone is another really strong song, and then it closes with how do you say this? I always get it wrong in a morata in a That's how whenever I can't think of how to pronounce a word, I'll think back to Inglorious Bastards and when. Brad Pitt says, like, the whitest version of any word. I'm like, okay, it's not that. It's not in a morata. It's got to be in a (laughs) morata. So that song is the longest they've ever put to tape. I think it's actually a couple seconds longer than their merciful fate medley of covers from Garage Inc. And um, everyone was talking about how long it is. It's 11 or 12 minutes long, and I thought oh, wow, okay, that's quite like they're they're topping Bleeding Me and Outlaw Torn and Master Puppets and so many of these epics they've written. And I thought, is it going to be one of these bloated songs Is maybe a little overindulgent? It's not at all. I remember in the theater watching it, and when the song was finally winding down to close I was like what no no there's got to be more I I thought that it was going to be twice as long because it is a 11 12 minute song that feels like a five minute song and I, I was very impressed by it and it's sort of a sister song to my friend of misery from the black album lyrically you know it's like misery she needs me but I need her more um really really cool song it's maybe a little more modern talica than uh some people like they only like the fastest you know shit but as a fan of you know black album load reload hardwired i really really like this song because i can appreciate the tony iomi bluesy metal influence in james's guitar playing And uh, this is a great example of it. And the song just has a really nice build and takes you on a whole journey. I also think there's just some interesting riffs throughout, like Chasing Light, I believe, is one where there's a break after the intro and it just cuts to guitar. And there's no hi-hats there, actually. And the riff never quite goes where I expect it to go, the way he's cutting in and out of these chord changes is is very interesting and um so yeah i really think this is a james hetfield album this is a a post rehab you know he he went in after uh snm2 a couple years back and you know he he came out with some self-reflection and something to say and i really respect him pushing himself this hard and and making an album that is this solid front to back more than 40 years into their career and almost no one on earth can say that. So while I think artificial Intelligence, but here we are toxic positivity and perhaps guts, while I think many of these are perfect albums and i have addressed some flaws or concerns rather in 72 seasons this is my favorite band and those high highs are so satisfying and again it is a very consistent album despite the occasional solo or hi-hat solo as we might joke about This is the album that I've played the most this year. And I apologize for such a long episode. I thought this would be short. I did fewer honorable mentions than ever. But hopefully for the video format, it's more enjoyable. And for anyone that just listened like normal, I appreciate you as well. Thanks for sticking in there with me. I do not know if i will be continuing the show with another season at this time i am doing pre-production on bat fanatic season four with my new co-hosts so this is not a priority just in terms of it takes so much effort to book and find guests for the show so at this time i don't have any plans to revive the take 92 podcast but i may pop up on occasion to break down excuse me break down a new album or to review some of my favorites like this so thank you again i believe this is our eighth annual top 10 albums of the year thank you guys so much for listening Normally, I play this out with a song, but I don't know how to do that on the video. So we're going to leave this. And uh, if you want to hear a song from my new record, Demented Inventive Energy, pull up the audio version here, or you can go to your streaming apps, do that shit. Or buy it from me at Take92.com. Get all the Sammy Warm Hands and Dead Fucking Serious and all that other shit. Thanks.